And I have the uh, privilege of serving as the youth pastor at Lake Point Family Church in Leamington. And so I'm honored to, to have this opportunity to, to share with you this morning. Uh, absolutely love your, your pastors here at, in Essex and um, just what your church is doing in this community, what God is doing through you guys in this community. And so I'm excited to be here. Uh, truly humbled that, that Pastor Brent would uh, entrust his pulpit uh, to me while he's away. Um, let's, let's pray that that was not a mistake on his part. Um, and also just wanted to, uh, to shout out uh, Pastor Nathan. Um, just my appreciation for Pastor Nathan. He actually, you might not be aware of this, but he actually gives leadership and direction to the youth pastors in our section. And so the deposits of wisdom and love that, that Nathan has made in my life, uh, they, they are so valuable. Um, my son... I have a three-year-old son, and, and he's uh, had to be hospitalized a couple times for, for some respiratory issues. And Pastor Nathan's always the, the first guy to, to text us and to call us and to ask to pray with us or, or to ask if he can come and be with us uh, when we, we were in the hospital. And so I have nothing but, but love and respect for Pastor Nathan and his family. Uh, as Nathan uh, mentioned, I'm, I'm from Lake Point. As I mentioned, I'm from Lake Point. Um, but I actually grew up just outside of Niagara Falls area in a small town um, named, uh, called Font Hill. Um, and so when I was first contacted about moving out this way, about moving out to Leamington, if I'm being honest, I had no idea that Leamington was even a city in Ontario. I had no idea. Uh, however, I, I, I had heard of Essex before uh, because we had beat you guys so many times at ice hockey and tournaments. So I, I had heard of it. Uh, a little bit about I have a, an amazing wife named Melissa, uh, and, and I absolutely love her, and she has this unrivaled gift of hospitality. Um, I like to think of myself as a fairly hospitable person. Um, like, if you came over to my house, I, I, you're welcome to eat anything or drink anything that you, that you want, but I probably wouldn't offer it to you. you would, I would just assume you would go to my refrigerator and get it. Um, but my wife, she is, like the, she is like the definition of hospitality. If she knows you're coming over for a visit... She has to prepare this whole gift basket for you of your favorite snacks. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. If she knew you were coming over, she has to prepare this basket. And the worst part is, is she gets me to do her dirty work. And so I have to like inconspicuously find out what your favorite snacks are. And so I, I send out like weird texts like, hey, if, if you were to eat Pringles, would you like sour cream and onion or plain? Right? Like no reason. And like... It's weird. It's weird. But that's what she does. She, she absolutely has the gift of hospitality, and I, I love her for it. She compensates for maybe my lack thereof. Uh, I also have a, a son, as I mentioned. He's three years old at this point, and his name is Levi. Now, I might be slightly biased uh, when, it, when it comes to him. I probably am. But, like, I mean, look at this photo. We got, do we have a photo of Levi up there? I don't know. I mean, he is, like, the cutest little guy that there is. I absolutely adore him. Um, it never ceases to amaze me how much you can love someone. Like, like when he's sick, as a dad, when he's sick or when he's got like a cold or a flu, it's just like, I'm just like, God, like, let me take it for him. Like, transfer the sickness, right? Like, that's like, you just love him. It's incredible. The, the love of a parent is really powerful. And plus, being a dad, I become okay with things that I didn't think I would be okay with ever in my life. Um, one of my, my favorite times with my son is bath time. And so he absolutely loves water. He absolutely loves swimming, loves bath time. And so in my house, it's my responsibility. Bath time, that's, that's daddy and Levi time. And so my wife, she kind of takes a break. She kind of takes some mommy time. And, and daddy and Levi, we, we, are, we are together. And 
I found it boring, you know, sitting outside of the tub, and so I started throwing on my bathing suit. And now I sit in the tub and I kind of play with him as he's in the bath a lot of the time. And it's awesome. I mean, I'll probably start doing it, stop doing it rather, as he gets a little older. Like by 15, we're done, right? By fit, like, but, but for now, it's still cute. And so when he was two and when he was in the tub, we were playing together. And, and he started to get really sleepy. It was right before bedtime. And, and when Levi gets sleepy, he starts to get really cuddly and, and it gets so cute. And so he stands up in the tub and he puts his arms around me and he starts hugging me. And it's like the cutest, nakedest hug you've ever seen. And it was such a heartwarming moment that I started to feel the warmth from my heart. The warmth moved down to my belly. And it was it just, turns out it wasn't just an inner warmth I was feeling. As Levi was hugging me, he decided that he was going to pee on me. Um, so it was the cutest pee hug you've ever experienced. I mean, and the weirdest part, I was okay with it. I was okay with it. Never would have guessed that I would have thought getting peed on was a cute thing, but, but there I am. I'm okay with it as a dad. It, it was great. I titled uh, this talk this morning, as you can see on the screen behind me, or, or Moving the Comma. And this is a title that's only going to make sense if you stick around for the entire sermon, so you can't just sneak out halfway through. This morning, I want to chat with you about offense the hurts, the disappointments, the frustrations that have nestled their way into our hearts and they have turned into bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. We live in a culture that seemingly has very thin skin, right? Like a culture where where someone simply having a different opinion than you is seen as offensive. And why this matters is because if you let offense run rampant in your life, you're the one that ends up suffering. You're the one that pays the price. When we don't take ownership of our offense, when we don't see the underlying roots of selfishness that are in our hearts when we get offended, we set ourselves up for frustration. We set ourselves up for disaster in our relationships. Jesus, He makes it very clear that in this life, it is impossible to live in this world and not have the opportunity at some point to become offended. There's a good chance that someone in this room has offended you at some point. There's a good chance that maybe something I say this morning may offend you, which makes it great that I go to another church. People will do stuff in this life that has the potential to offend you. You will do things in this life that has the potential to offend other people. And the choice that we all face is what do we do when, when the option for offense arises, right? Will we, will we forgive? Will we extend grace? Or will we let bitterness fester? Will we seek out retribution? The causes of offense, they are are numerous. Like there's different triggers for different people. And the reality is, the closer the person is to you, the closer people are to you, the, the greater opportunity they have to hurt you. You know this. You get this. The people you care about most in your life are the ones that can actually hurt you the most. You might be sitting here this morning and the person sitting beside you offended you on the way here. Don't put your hand up if that's you. But it could have happened. You expect more of them because you've given more of yourself to them. It's pretty simple. The higher the expectations, the greater the fall. It's why I have the uncanny ability to offend my wife like nobody else. Like, just ask her. I do. When we were first getting to know each other, before we were dating or anything, we were, we were with a group of friends and we were eating pizza. And so she got up to grab another slice of pizza and I I thought it would be humorous to ask her, don't you think you've had enough? 
Okay, come on. I, I thought it was funny at the time. Turns out it's not humorous, it's just offensive. So that was a... However, you want to know that God is real? Not only did I convince that girl to date me, I convinced her to marry me. Like, like talk about miracles, right? Forgiveness, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And so if you're like me, and sometimes your tongue moves a little bit quicker than your brain does, you've been very generous in giving your friends and your family and other people the opportunity to choose forgiveness over offense, right? Like, so kind of us to do that for them. But what I want for your life and what I want for my life is that we would be people who are marked by and known by our grace and forgiveness. I believe if we're able to embrace grace rather than create a defense for our offense, not only are we going to benefit, not only are our families going to benefit, not only are the the relationships we have with people that we work with going to benefit, our friendships are going to benefit, but our churches are going to benefit. If we embrace grace and forgiveness... We'll be people that other people actually want to be around. When it comes to offense, John Bevere divides all offended people into two categories. And those two categories are those who have been treated unjustly and those who believe they have been treated unjustly. Those who have been treated unjustly and those who believe they've been treated unjustly. And the people in that first category, they believe that they have been wronged. And they actually have been Somebody, another human being has done or said something to them that can only be labeled or classified as sin and it has caused an offense in their life. However, the people in that second category, they also believe that they have been wronged. They believe with all of their hearts that they have been wronged, that someone has done something against them. The only difference is theirs is based in the faulty perception. People in that second category of offense, they tend to judge based on assumptions or appearances or hearsay. And if that's you, if you took an inventory of your life and you're like, you know, I find most of my offenses are based off of assumptions and appearances, then offense has a really unhealthy hold on your heart. Maybe this sounds familiar. After the gathering, uh, maybe even this morning, you're, you're out in the lobby and, and someone doesn't say hi to you. And so you start saying to yourself, like, what the heck, what's their problem? Why didn't they say hi to me? Do they not like me? I'm good enough to say hi to And you build up this whole thing and you get angry. It's like, why didn't they say? Meanwhile, they just didn't see you, right? But you've gone on to construct this entire story in your head where they purposely not said hello to you. And now you're offended because of the story that you have concocted. It it happens all, all the time. Our brains actually love filling in the details to stories that we don't know. There are brains, that's what they crave. People have spent a lot of time, a lot of resources, money, to study this, and and what they discovered is that when we don't know all the details to something, our brains actually fill in the gaps, and often what they do is they fill in the gaps with the worst possible scenario. And that's why it's so important to dialogue with people when you catch your brain filling in the details to stories that you don't actually know. But if you catch your brain telling yourself a story, uh, the pastoral team that I have the privilege of working with, we actually do this. It sounds really weird to say to somebody, the story in my head is, but it's been super beneficial in fighting against offense uh, uh, for us as a staff, you know. When when you tell people what you're thinking, when you invite feedback to what what you're thinking, the gaps your brain has tried to fill in, they get overwritten with what the truth is. 
A couple months ago, Melissa and I, we were uh, at, uh, Melissa Levi and I, we were at Great Wolf Lodge, the, the water park at Great Wolf Lodge, and, and, and Levi, he was still two at the time, and, and he is absolutely uh, obsessed with water, as I mentioned, loves bath time, loves water, and so we're running all over the water park, I'm trying to keep up with him, he's having this absolute blast, and I'm following Levi around the kiddie pool, he, he's kind of just doing his own thing, and he's not really paying attention to those around him. He doesn't kind of, he's not aware of his surroundings. And, and sure enough, there's a, a blonde woman standing in, in the kiddie pool, and Levi is slowly inching his way towards her, not really realizing it, but he's making his way towards her. And my mind starts to warn me exactly how this is going to play out. She's facing the other way, and she has no idea what's about to transpire behind her. And Levi's getting closer and closer, and I know exactly what's going to happen. And so just to paint this picture a little bit clearer for you, let's just say that her bathing suit could have used a little bit more fabric. Um, There was some skin that was exposed, and it was vulnerable. And so Levi's a few feet away from me, and I reach out to stop him, because I see what's happening. I reach out to stop him, and as I reach out, Levi reaches up. Okay, I reach out, Levi reaches up, and he squeezes the woman on her butt cheek. And there I am, with my arm extended behind her. Needless to say, I did not look innocent in that moment. And, and the, the, the face that she gave me, the look that she gave me, it's just a few seconds, she just looks at me, and I could tell the conclusion that she had jumped to, Right? Like when she saw me, I already knew the story that she told herself. I had no words. I just was kind of like left standing there looking like a big creep. Right? Like, I'm like, uh-oh. Thankfully, after a couple seconds, she, she put two and two together and she figured it was Levi who went in for the squeeze and not me. And so she easily could have let the, the stories, the assumptions and the appearance of the situation, right? Like, like cause some serious offense. Uh, especially if she stuck with that first story that her brain told her. Right? When she realized it was Levi who had done it, she, instead of being offended, she, she looked at Levi at that point. She, she, when she realized it was him and she looked at him, she goes, Oh, you like that? Which, at that point, I got offended. Alright? Because I'm like, the story in my head is like, that's a really weird thing to say to a two year old who just grabbed your butt, right? So I'm offended at this. Like, I started off feeling like she was the victim and now I'm the victim and I'm just like, this is a horrible butt grabbing fiasco. It's interesting, though, and it's true of every offense. When we get offended, we see ourselves as the victim, and we blame those who have hurt us. And so we justify our our bitterness, we justify our unforgiveness, our anger, our envy, our resentment. Truth is, though, whether you were mistreated or not, whether the story you've told yourself is accurate or not, God actually doesn't give you permission to hold on to an offense. It's an old cliche, but two wrongs don't make a right. I believe that the cure for an offended heart is a matter of gaining perspective of what God has done for us and attaining a better understanding of what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. Both of which Jesus graciously provides for us. And so this morning I want us to consider one of the parables, incredible parables that Jesus taught His disciples. Um, it's It's a parable that gives us, provides us a lot of perspective when it comes to forgiveness. And so if you have your Bible with you, you can flip open to, to Matthew chapter 18. Uh, the, book of the, Ma- the book of Matthew is in the second part of the Bible in the, in the New Testament. Um, and so we're going to be camping out in Matthew 18 this morning, starting at verse 21. It says this, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, 
Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Seven seems like a random number to us, doesn't it? Like, seven, like Peter, where'd you get that from? But Peter, what he was doing was he was actually trying to impress Jesus. He was trying to impress him, and seven was actually a really generous offer. The majority of the Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day, in that time, what they would say is if you really want to be a forgiving person, what you need to do is forgive somebody three times. They had Old Testament examples for that, and so that's what they said. You want to be a forgiving person? Three times. And so, so Peter, he's trying to one-up it, and so Peter's like, if I say seven, like, Jesus is going to give me a gold star, like, that's more, that's twice, that's more than twice as much. But then this is Jesus' response. He says, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. To which I'm sure Peter's jaw kind of hit the floor in that moment. Like, Peter's thinking, like, Jesus, like, seven, seven is pretty, off, pretty uh, generous, like, and Jesus says, no, 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 not, not just seven times, Peter. Not just seven, but like, keep going. Like, times that number by 70. And what Jesus is trying to convey to Peter is an infinite number of times that we need to forgive other people. And I'm not sure why, why Jesus chose the 70 times seven. You know, maybe uh, Jesus knew Peter wasn't that good at math, and so he just chose a high number to multiply his answer by, and, and he figured Peter would give up on trying to figure out the solution instead of, and just keep forgiving people. I don't know. But what he's getting at is saying, it's an infinite amount of times I want you to forgive someone. And so Jesus sees the look in Peter's face at this point, and he knows that he's just rocked Peter's world. And so Jesus uses the opportunity to, to reveal some powerful truths about forgiveness. And he goes on to tell Peter a story that provides us with such a humbling perspective that when we get it, like when we grasp what, what Jesus is saying in this, what we think is important, the offenses and debts that we hold against other people, they sort of just seem to slip away. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents of gold was brought to him. 10,000 talents of gold is an obscene amount of money. 10,000 talents of gold would be billions upon billions of dollars today. The point is, this debt was unpayable. A servant would never come remotely close to accumulating that much wealth in his entire lifetime. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. But that, that wouldn't be equal restitution, right? Like, slaves at their top price were sold for one talent of gold, usually far less than that. Even if you sold him and his family and everything, it wasn't coming close to paying back that debt. It wasn't coming close. It would barely, the money that you would get for something would barely even, you know, form some sort of justice. It wouldn't. And so at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Talk about a lack of perspective, right? Like this isn't an issue of patience. The servant was never going to be able to repay that debt, no matter how patient the master was. The servant should have been crying out for mercy. Instead, he cries out for patience. And yet, as soon as I start to judge the servant in this story, as soon as we do that, boy, doesn't he start to kind of remind me of myself? And, and maybe he reminds you a little bit of, of yourself. We do something wrong, we sin, we mess up, and, and we say, God, just have patience with me. God, like, like just give me more time. Like, I'm going to figure this out. I'll make things right, God. I'm going to earn your love. I'm going to earn my way into heaven. I'm going to make it up to you. Be patient. But really what we need to be saying 
through our actions and through what we actually pray, we need to be saying, Lord, have mercy. Not, I, God, Lord, have mercy, not have patience. Lord, have mercy, I can't do this without you. The servant's master took pity on him. He canceled the debt and he let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Are you kidding me? He just had this massive debt erased, wiped away, and now he's physically assaulting someone else over one six hundred thousandth of what he owed to his master. It's like you're a, a landlord and you own a couple properties and, and you rent them out to, to people and so you're behind on your mortgages and so you, you have an appointment, you have to go in and you have to talk to the bank manager and so you go into the bank manager and you're like, bank manager, please, like, like just give me patience, I will pay back, I will get this, I will get everything right, I will pay, just have patience with me. And instead the, the bank manager goes, don't, don't worry about it, we've, we've erased your debt, you are, you are forgiven, you no longer owe us anything, we've paid off your houses for you. And then it's, you go out and you physically assault one of your tenants because they're a month behind on their rent. That's what it's like. And we think, oh, that's crazy. I, I'd never do that. That's crazy. I'd never do that. But then just as Jesus tends to do, He's going to pull back the curtain and show us just how much we really are like that unforgiving servant. Jesus continues the story. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. The man who owed the smaller debt, he uses the exact same phrase, be patient with me. He asked for the exact same mercy. But it didn't matter to the servant and he wanted what was his. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Then Jesus spoke these very sobering words. And, and if you have your, your Bible on you, I would encourage you, uh, circle, highlight, underline, whatever it is, underline this verse because it's so important. It says this, Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's how God is going to treat you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. The unforgiving servant, that's, it's you and I. It's, it's you and me. It's, or at least it's what we're capable of if we allow offense to dictate our lives. You see, offense is actually a gospel issue. In our hurt and in our woundedness and in our offense, we can lose sight of the truth that no one has been sinned against more than God. No one has been more wounded, grieved, mistreated, betrayed, hurt than God. And ultimately, every time you and I sin, we add to the hurt that God's experiences. God has every right to be the most embittered person ever. The debt we owe Him is incomparable. The offenses that people have caused, they are, they are peanuts. In light of what the offenses that we've done to God, they are peanuts in light of that. Yet instead, He came as Jesus and He took our place to suffer for our sins and He declared forgiveness from the cross, which we're celebrating next weekend for Easter. In light, in light of what Jesus has done, our forgiveness of others, just so you know, has very little to do, it has very little, if anything, to do with them. It has everything to do with God. 
Our, we forgive others because it's a form of worship. We forgive others because God has actually forgiven us. Andy Stanley once said, In the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy. But in the shadow of the cross, my forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. Forgiveness is, is in the shadow of the cross. Forgiveness is, is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. In a lot of ways, this, this passage, this story, it speaks for itself. We could stop right here and you would have more than enough to, to chew on. But we need to see not only why only a fool refuses to forgive, but we also need to see what forgiveness looks like. I think our inability at times to forgive someone comes from some wacky ideas that, that we hold on to about forgiveness. Some, some goofy ideas about what God's forgiveness actually looks like and what God actually expects from us when it comes to forgiveness. I think that, that forgiveness may be one of the most misused, misapplied, and most misunderstood quality in our culture. We think we get how it works, but we really don't. And so I want to take some time quickly this morning to, to share with you what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Four things it is, five things it is not. And so let's start with what it isn't. And the first is, is forgiving is not conditional. Forgiving is not conditional. Real forgiveness is unconditional. There's no attachment to it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't bargain for it. Forgiveness is not even based on the promise from someone to never do what they did again. You offer it to somebody whether they ask for it or not. Forgiveness doesn't actually require the other person to seek it out. Some of you have had unspeakable things done to you by a, a family member or a parent or a loved one or a friend that they've had absolutely no right to do. Yet whether or not they seek out forgiveness, whether or not they admit to their failure, to their sin, we're still called to forgive them. There are some people that have offended us that we will never see again. There are some people that will die before you ever hear an apology from them, but we're still called to forgive. We, be, we forgive because it's what God requires and it's what we need, not because those who have offended us have apologized to us. When Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross, read in Luke 22, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Nobody had asked for it. Nobody had said, like, Jesus, forgive me. Like, Jesus, please. No, he, he just offered it. Jesus took the initiative. Second thing, forgiving is not forgetting. Forgiving does not mean that you forget what someone has done to you. We believe this myth that God is a forgetful God. And it's a myth. We quote verses like Jeremiah 31, like, For I will forgive their, their wickedness and will remember it no longer. And then we quote like Psalm 103, and it says, like, As far as the east is from the west, that's how far He has removed our transgressions from us. And so we think it makes sense that God has completely thrown away those memories. But then when we go and we try to forgive somebody, we're like, I keep hurting about this. I keep thinking about this. I keep remembering this. I just can't let it go. Like, God must be mad at me. There must be something wrong with me. And we think we need to form some kind of like spiritual memory lobotomy in order to get rid of these thoughts, these memories. And, but here's why the myth of a forgetful God is a myth. It's because the Hebrew concept of remembering is different than our concept of remembering. It's not that you recall something you've forgotten, but it's that you turn your focus towards something else. So whenever in the Bible God says it's written that God says, I remember, it means that He's turning His focus towards something. Not that He's forgotten something. And when it says that He'll remember it no more, it means He's choosing to turn His focus away from something. 
And I think these verses are actually a lot more powerful and even more beautiful when you understand that it's not that God isn't remembering these things anymore. It's rather He's continually choosing not to bring them up. He's turning His attention. He's turning His focus elsewhere. Think about it. God, God is omniscient, meaning He is all-knowing. It is impossible for Him to actually forget something. He purely is choosing not to focus on it. That's a gracious God. That's forgiveness. Forgiving is not downplaying. When somebody asks for your forgiveness and you say, uh, it's no big, real, big deal, it didn't really hurt that much, that actually cheapens forgiveness. If it wasn't a big deal to you, you wouldn't feel the need for them to apologize to you. If it wasn't a big deal to you, you wouldn't have been offended in the first place, right? Forgiveness really isn't about denying the hurt and the damage that has been done to you. It's not as simple as saying it's in the past, I've just kind of moved on. When you forgive someone, in fact, what you're saying is, is yeah, you were wrong. Yeah, that how you sinned against me, that hurt. That caused some damage. But I'm going to choose to extend grace to you. That's what forgiveness actually looks like. Forgiving is not reconciliation. It takes one sinner to repent, and it takes one victim to forgive, but it takes both people to reconcile. Without both of those elements, without someone willing to repent, and without someone willing to forgive, reconciliation does not happen. Sure, forgiveness, it's the beginning of the reconciliation process. But it's not in and of itself reconciliation. It's not. For any of you that have tried to reconcile a relationship, you know that trust is gained slowly and lost quickly. And that's biblical. Proverbs 14 says, The simple believe anything, but the prudent give thoughts to their steps. Forgiveness, trust, reconciliation, they all may be connected, but they are not. They are certainly not the same thing. Forgiving is not removing consequences. I believe you can offer forgiveness at the same time that you call the police on somebody. Our sin has consequences. We don't have time to unpack this one this morning, but sometime this week I encourage you, crack open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. You'll get to read about King David and this major sin in his life and how God forgives him, yet there are still consequences to what he's done. David is forgiven, but his, his sin still cost him the life of his son. Know that there's still consequences even when you forgive somebody. And there's still consequences for you even when you've been forgiven by somebody. Think about it like this. If you're in a marriage relationship and one of you decide to cheat on the other person, your partner can forgive you. But you'd be crazy to think there's not going to be lasting consequences on your relationship. You'd be crazy to think that your partner is simply going to choose to forget what you've done. You'd be crazy to think that your partner is going to downplay the seriousness of the hurt and the damage that you have committed against them. You'd be crazy to think that you wouldn't have to work really hard at regaining that trust. Yet sometimes I think those are the attitudes that we have towards forgiveness. But that's not what true forgiveness looks like. Real forgiveness is free, but it isn't cheap. Real forgiveness is free, but it isn't cheap. Consider what forgiveness costs God. Jesus on the cross, he, he gives it freely, but it costs God His only Son. He offers it freely to you, but it, it had a high cost. Real forgiveness is free, but it isn't cheap. 
The Bible tells us real forgiveness is this. Forgiving is remembering. Forgiving is remembering how much you've been forgiven. Paul writes in Ephesians, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here this morning because we've kind of already talked about the magnitude of this truth already. It's, it's the whole point of Jesus' parable. But I will say this, though. The more you appreciate the grace you have received from God, the more gracious of a person you're going to be. The more you appreciate the forgiveness that you have received from God, the more forgiving of a person you are going to be. Forgiving is relinquishing. Forgiveness is refusing to seek your own revenge, right? It's relinquishing your right to get even. And here's the thing. Romans 12:19 says, Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I will take care of it. Know that life's not, not fair. It isn't. But one day, God will settle the score. He's going to right the wrongs. Life's not fair. And thankfully, God's not fair. Don't mishear me. God is a just God. Not arguing that. But He's not fair. And that's a good thing. Because if He was fair, none of us would be getting into heaven. But let me ask you this. When it comes to getting revenge on someone who has wronged you, when it comes to getting even, to getting justice, who do you think is going to be better at the whole justice thing? You or God? Forgiving is blessing. Forgiving is choosing not to repay evil with good. Jesus tells us, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. It's hard to do, but I think a true sign of forgiveness is when you're able to look past your offense and you're able to pray blessing over somebody that has wronged you. I know some of my most humbling prayer times have been the moments when I've intentionally prayed blessing over someone that has wounded me. Finally, forgiving is repeating. Forgiveness is repeating the process as long as necessary. Peter asks Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive it? And Jesus just kind of tells him, as long as it takes. As long as it takes. Keep forgiving those who have wronged you until it actually sticks. If there's still pain, if there's still disappointment, if there's still frustration or a desire for revenge... You need to forgive that person again and again and again. Every time those emotions, every time those feelings pop up, you need to forgive them again. That's what you need to do. What makes forgiving so valuable is not only what it does for someone else, but what it, the freedom and peace it actually gives to our own souls. When I was 10 years old, my family had gotten together for a Thanksgiving dinner. And I love my grandpa, me and my, my cousins, we called him Papa. And, and we would get excited whenever we would get to spend time with, with Papa because he always knew how to make us laugh. He was, he was the joker and, and he always told these hilarious jokes. And so during that Thanksgiving dinner, my, my Papa was joking around with my cousin and I and, and he called us dumb and he told us we needed to stay in school. He said something along those lines. He says, you know, Jake, Michael, you, you're, you're dumb, you need, to, you need to stay in school. He said it as a joke. And, and much like your average 10-year-old, we, we joke back. And we said the same thing kind of back to him. He said, no, 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 Papa, you're dumb. You need to go back to school. That was the last time I've seen my grandfather. I haven't seen him in 17 years, even though he lives 15 minutes away from where I grew up to this day. If I could take back that comment, I would, right? But it, it probably wouldn't make that much of a difference because he would have found something else to be offended by. 
You see, my dad and my uncle, they used to have to kind of monitor how we joke around with our papa, and he would have to correct us if we ever joked back with him, because that's how he joked, that's how he would joke around with us, and so they had to correct us if we ever said something out of line, you know, they would have to say, no, no, Michael, no, no, Jake, like, like, Papa's very smart, and they would have to correct us in that way, and on that fateful day, they failed to correct us, and so that silly comment that I made as a 10-year-old to my Papa, those silly comments that me and my 9-year-old cousin, 10 and 9, he's put us out of his life, he put his grandkids out of his life completely, he shut us out. Nothing we could say would make any difference. It wasn't long before he found a reason to cut everyone out of his life, and I mean everyone, his grandkids, his own daughters, his brother. He didn't even attend his own mother's funeral last year. Outside of trips to the casino, he stays in his apartment away from everybody, angry and offended. I forgive my papa for what, he, what he's done to us. I forgive, I forgive him for walking out on us. I, I hope to one day reconcile my relationship with him. It's, it's my prayer that one day God will get a hold of his, his heart, that God will get a hold of his heart and heart. But that's where offense and unforgiveness will leave you if you don't keep it in check. Maybe not to that extreme, but also not as far away as you might think. It really comes down to basic math. Forgiveness adds, offense subtracts. Forgiveness adds people to your life. People want to be around other people who are forgiving. Forgiveness adds joy, peace, and love to your life and to those you do life with. Offense subtracts people from your life. And not just the people you don't want in your life. People don't want to spend time with people who are easily offended and who are unforgiving. They don't. Offense has the power to subtract joy, peace, and love from your life and from the life of those you do life with. As, uh, as we wrap up our time, I'm going to invite Betty to come on up and jump on the keys for us. I want to wrap up our time together by sharing a little story that causes us to ask a really big question. Alexander III was Tsar of Russia from 1881 to 1894. He was a brutal leader. He repressed his people and he heavily persecuted the Jewish population in Russia. However... In a stark contrast, his wife, Maria, was actually the opposite. She was known for, uh, the, uh, for her generosity. She was known for giving grace to those in need. And so as the story goes, on one occasion her husband had, had signed an, an order sending a prisoner to life in exile. And the note simply read this. It says, pardon impossible, pardon impossible to be sent to Siberia. Knowing the cruelty and the malice of her husband, Maria changed the prisoner's life by by moving the punctuation in her husband's order. And she altered the note to read, Pardon, impossible to be sent to Siberia. The prisoner was released. His debt was removed. He was set free. Why I share this is is because God has changed the comma that stood against us. God has removed a great debt from us and He he offers us grace and He offers us forgiveness. And so if you've put your trust in Jesus, if you've put your trust and your faith in Jesus, that comma that was on your sentence, it has been moved, it has been changed. And so the question I want you to consider this morning is who in your life do you need to move the comma for? Who is it 
in your life that you need to move the comma for? Who is it that you need to extend grace and forgiveness to you, to whether they've asked for it or not? Forgiveness adds offensive tracks. God moved the comma for us. And so the question we need to face and wrestle with is who do we need to move the comma for for someone else? Let's pray.